Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Hayden-Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to this BAFTA's members screening. Um, we have a lot of guests with us this afternoon um, associated with the film um, Sulphur and White. First of all, I'd like to welcome David Tate, whose story it is that you've watched. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, also, I'd like to welcome the director of the film, Julian Gerald, and screenwriter Susie Farrell. Hello, both. Hi, Hello. thanks for having us. And three of the actors from the film, Mark Stanley, Emily Beecham, and Alistair Petrie. Hello, all. Hello. Okay, I'm, I'm going to start with you, first of all, David. Um, just the decision that led you to agreeing to have a film made about your life and experiences. Less a decision, more a, an accident, to be honest. Um, I, I tried to write a book um, on impulse, largely, after a 2007 climb where I sort of disclosed what had happened to me in a, in a very short sentence. Um, this film, this uh, manuscript or pretend book didn't actually materialize, but someone uh, took it from my hands and decided to try and make it into a film. Um, over the course of the following 10 years, I was pretty much a bemused bystander, uh, but they the eventually took shape. And in the last two years, just before fruition, I really threw my weight behind it because um, I, I, I could see that one, it was gonna happen, literally before my eyes, there was no, no turning back. And secondly, it, it looked like a vehicle that I could change the child abuse world with. And uh, so less a decision, more accidental, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm just curious about the timing. I assume there must've been a point where you felt enough time had to pass before this was something that, that you could put out in public, or was that never really something that crossed your mind? No, I, I honestly, back in 2007, I was sitting at my desk at a, at a, at a fund, hedge fund, and uh, I was about to send my second email out, uh, second climb of my life. I did the first in 05, second in 07, and I think the driver was, I raised so much money in 05, that I thought 2007 I could do something spectacular, and it felt, appropriate at that time is perhaps the wrong word to actually disclose on the email what had happened and why I was doing it and so it, it was like an again an accidental thing that just tr that moment triggered my writing it on the bottom of the mail and the rest literally cascaded from there. Susie um you've already written the um screenplay for the film Dirty God which is about the survivor of an acid attack um which is an incredibly um, dense and moving story. And was it just natural that you you read this and felt that this was something that that you just had a handle on and and you wanted um, to tell this story, or what what, what what sort of drew you to it in, initially? Um, so not that initially, because um, David's uh, well, there was some material available, um, and initially. Uh, I wasn't that the material that David's referring to was kind of a very different take on the story and it had created a, a kind of world which was kind of about the subject matter which child abuse and then also it had this strange kind of James Bond-esque kind of slant. I wasn't certain that that was a film I could tell but when I um, read up about when I read about David and when and when we spoke uh, I was so struck by his courage really, his strength of character and his courage and also about this sense of deception, um, this 
presentation of a persona and uh, his way of navigating his life, uh, keeping this hidden secret. And I was really drawn to that. And so we then set about a, a process um, which, which then led to, to my script. And Julian, can you talk about um, the stage that you became involved in this process? So I think uh, I got sent the early draft of uh, Susie's script and I didn't know anything about it. Um, producer claimed he had told me, but I don't think he ever did. And in a way, it was the most interesting and sort of powerful way to approach it because uh, I didn't know where the story was going at all. And one was sort of invested in young David and then this sort of growing horror as you began to realise what was going to happen. And then get just being taken on the sort of roller coaster uh, ride of his of his life and then seeing the lights at the end of the tunnel I found it incredibly powerful and emotional and I was sort of fascinated as well I suppose by the the way that David seemed to be able to function incredibly well uh, in these very stressful kind of financial crash moments when the stock market was going down and people were all stressed out and yet he appeared to have no sort of feelings of that but was able to to perform incredibly successfully and so that that whole thing of the sort of mask and and, and putting on a front and using work as an anesthetic really was, was kind of a, a really interesting part of the, the story for me as well. David um Susie's just saying about this this original version of a script um, with the, the Bond-esque elements obviously your, your experience uh, climbing in the Himalayas um, what was your reaction when you read the shooting script that Susie had written? I think I'd probably forgotten how honest I'd been with Susie, to be honest. Um, uh, I, I, was, I was shocked, I'll be honest with you. I, I shouldn't have been. I mean, I should have remembered exactly that I decided to give it all up to her, um, but I had forgotten. So when it arrived on my, my iPad, I started reading, got to, I think, chapter three or scene three, whatever it was, and uh, that was enough, really. And then uh, Vanessa tiptoed away, left me alone for a day or two until I read it through, and then read it about literally probably 10 times until I was sort of slightly more accepting of my own shortcomings, and uh, then moved forward. But I, ironically, I was shocked when I saw it portrayed in front of my own eyes. Clearly, inside my head, I was James Bond. <laughs> but you were still happy to go ahead. I guess the, the thing is, I've seen a lot of films um, that tell people's personal stories and, and tell stories of abuse in the past, and they may be moving, but there are certain points in the film that I might feel that something's been over-sentimentalised or a punch has been pulled. And what shocked me about watching this film for the first time, that doesn't happen at any point in time. So even though you read that, you still said go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if, I, if you'd asked me what my what I thought should happen 20 minutes into reading the first script, it would be, I'm going to run, unless that's been the idea. But it really was a case of reflecting, wandering around, you know, spending a couple of days, really thinking about what I wanted to achieve with this, and deciding that uh, the story was the story, and stick to it no matter what, and let the pieces fall where they do. Because even through that, even through all that, and the, the, the sheer, I mean, sheer, apparent sheer terror at first when I first read the script was, oh God, this is going to get in so badly for me. But I tried to force myself to think what, what, what I could do with it, 
or what the charity, the NSPCC, could essentially do with this story if it was portrayed correctly. And so I literally, for want of a better expression, tightened up my pants and, and jumped in with two feet. Uh, you know, and luckily, through virtue of the very people you have on this panel, um, we ended up, and thank you to Julian, we ended up something that was truly reflective of, uh, of the truth. And I, I just have to suck up the embarrassment every time I sit down and watch it. But it's, um, it's doing what it said on the, chin, on the tin, and I didn't want it, I didn't want it sugarcoated. Mark and, and Emily, let's get your reaction on um, first reading the script. Uh, first, Mark. Uh, first reading the script, I just thought that what Susie had done was, uh, it was laid bare. Uh, and that was the draw for me, really. Um, I, I didn't really have any interest in portraying someone who uh, would be uh, protective or sugarcoating um, their experience. And so for this, we, you know, through David's bravery, really, and his own courage, um, certainly braver than I could ever be, uh, he came forward and he's allowed his voice to be a vehicle for hopefully other people to find their voice. And I could see that. I could see, I could see how integral that might be to some, some people. And so that was that was a big draw for me. And I think we constantly kind of talk about it. You know, there's a few aspects to this film and one of which we want to bring to light what abuse actually is. You know, David said this a couple of times that some people don't know what abuse is and where on the spectrum. Some people think that certain things uh, are acceptable and they're not, they're on the spectrum. They're, they're on, you know, they're part of the abuse uh, and next thing, we, we wanted to be able to share what kind of behaviour is manifested from that abuse. Uh, and that, for me, is where it became really interesting. Um, and so with Susie's script, we were able to lay that bare. Uh, and Julian, you know, as, as often as um, tastefully as he shoots certain scenes, certainly with the younger David, with Hugo, uh, we... Certainly, later on, when you're not dealing with a you know a child actor who doesn't necessarily know the ins and outs of what they're doing, uh, for me it became about showing the collateral of what this script, of what David's experiences has laid down in its wake, and that for me was really really important and really interesting. So that's what I got from it, and that's what drew me to it, and I hope that's what we've executed with it. Um, and, you know, David will often say, none of us are very, very important when it comes to telling this story. The, the most important thing is, is the message behind it. Uh, and so it's great to be part of that. And um, that's what I got when I read the script. And Emily? Yeah, uh, I feel a lot of the same ways that Mark does about that. And, um, yeah, when I first read the script, I thought it was extremely moving and a powerful script. So it was really not a difficult decision to, it was really wanted to be a part of it. And of course, uh, so I went to meet Julian and it was quite a, to talk about the script and yeah. yeah was... And did you have many conversations with Vanessa? I met her once, but um, I think the, 
uh, had to obviously had to be uh, sensitive and uh, respectful. I, I think she possibly it's a painful experience for her, and it's ultimately telling David's story. And um, so obviously, I didn't want to push her or anything. But but we had a, a lovely conversation and. We chatted about some things, but I just got mainly what I got from that experience was getting to know her. And she's got this really nice energy and she's she's very kind and very um, uh, nurturing and lovely. And you feel very safe. You feel very good around her. And I think that's really important um, because David had to feel uh, safe and able to trust her. And she's the love of his life. And ultimately, he she helped him come through this dark place and it's a love story and as well as um being quite a, a brutal story about uh the reality of, of what he's experienced but also it is about love and yeah so um and obviously you have two perspectives because you've got Vanessa's perspective but you you also have David's and perhaps if both of you are happy to you could talk about the conversations that you both had mm-hmm. of of not just knowing how Vanessa might have reacted in certain situations, but how David perceived that as well. Yeah, we chatted loads about it with Julie. We had a lot of rehearsals about their dynamic and what attracted them to each other. And there's a mystery to David. Uh, there's something that, well, he's, he's, you know, she could probably tell he's complicated, but interesting, he's a dark horse. So, and Vanessa mentioned to me something about finding that a little bit exciting and intimidating and interesting and of course he's extremely um he's just a very interesting person so yeah we had a they had a they had a good we talked a lot about their dynamic and their shifting things well yeah between and david you were you were on set i believe most of the time during the filming could you talk a little bit about sort of your adversarial role in in the film yeah i saw i saw um Julian visibly winced then when you mentioned the fact that I was on the set for such a long time. But um, yes, I was. It was, um, uh, I wanted to be there largely through just, just pure interest more than anything else. And uh, But probably the main driver was I was ter- terrified of the story being misrepresented. Um, I was very aware of, this, of the amount of content I'd given Susie, from which she'd chosen certain elements that were very salacious, and I, I feared that I was going about to be, how can we put it, exploited a second time, put it that way. And that's one way of looking at it. Um, but that, that, was, that didn't come to pass. Um, so I was, I, was, I was extremely, I was very thrilled to be there. I was mesmerized. I met some amazing people, laughed an awful lot and where I didn't expect to, and at times in South Africa, uh, went on an emotion roller coaster that uh, will never be repeated uh, if I could live a thousand lifetimes. And so I was immensely grateful for the experience and uh, would, and I, I frankly treasure it, despite the lows, some of the lows I hit, largely compensated for some of the exceptional highs I also hit as well during that process. It was a wonderful, beautiful experience. But also never forget, um, Daniel Craig is leaving the role of James Bond after this film, so uh, who knows? You may be in the film again. <laughs> um, that, would be, that would be a nice thing. Let, let's bring in Alistair at this point. Um, Jeff Connors, Alistair, is, this is the one character that um, I don't know if it's a real character or an, al- an amalgam of different characters. Um, 
he's uh, uh, he's he's a sort of an amalgam really i think it's uh it's sort of what he represents um uh in that in that amalgamation really um to david and i i sort of grew up in that <clears throat> i was sort of a young man in in that era so I, I i sort of had a lot of friends who were living who were the sort of junior traders they were they were they were lads from essex who were coming in on the train and, and making their fortune and i remember having a conversation with they were trying to make their fortune i remember having a conversation with david about sort of the interview process that um when these young guys came in if if they showed some guile and some spark and something about them it wasn't about their cv it was very much about what they could bring to um to this kind of no ruled slightly anarchic um indulgent um way of life that the sort of the the ballsiest seem to sort of cut through and i think david well he i remember david saying to me now it's very much sort of you know you need a degree from from mit so um yeah it's very much what what sort of jeff sort of represents um in that era i mean he's a, he's an abuser himself um in 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 so in so many ways and um while obviously not the worst influence on um, on um, David's life, um, he is certainly a part of something which is um, you know pretty uh, uh, you know um, abusive really. Um, but I just I just sort of wanted to touch on that thing that that, that Mark said about David's um, sort of the message um, behind the film. I mean I think what's so extraordinary about it that that uh, you know we talk about timeless films all the time. Um, and this is a timeless film, and especially more so even now, obviously, with what's going on um, in terms of the message that we're talking about um, with the uh, with the NSPCC, which is obviously has a, a great hand in glove with um, with this film and with this sort of dreadful situation we find ourselves in. What's going on um, uh, in terms of you know the contact that children are making with the NSPCC has gone up you know, exponentially over two thousand calls, I think, in the last um, couple of weeks from young people feeling anxious. Um, Thankfully, they are offering sessions and childline um, uh, counselling sessions as well, which is which is available. But they're struggling, of course, like all charities are. Um, and I think that's worth highlighting that, David, this story is timeless. I know we sort of slightly veered away from the question that you asked me, but it, it, um, it feels sort of important to highlight this. This 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 isn't uh, this isn't a story that that um, is has is going anywhere. No, and it, it actually brings me to a question uh, we have that someone sent in. And please do um, send in questions and, uh, and we'll ask our guests. This is from Tara Ward. Uh, thank you for such a powerful and honest film. I have enormous respect for everyone involved in it. A question for David Tate. Do you think it's possible to ever recover fully from child abuse? And can you learn to thrive again? Or is it always with you? In reverse. It's always with you. Never goes away. I wake up thinking of it. Do I think it's possible to thrive? Yes, but you need to you need to realize that um, it's not going anywhere, and you need to stop resenting life around you. You need to stop resenting the people around you. Um, what happened to you happened to you, and uh, you've got to try and see through it. I use the phrase "try and view life through forty thousand foot lens" a lot. I use it at work. I use it around me. That's very important. If you get bogged down in the weeds of the minutiae of what happened to you, if you start obsessing, your life's going nowhere. And up to a certain point where I stood on a certain cliff, I was obsessed with the minutiae. And then suddenly I decided that there was something bigger out there that I might be able to influence with it. It took a long time before it manifested itself. 
but I needed to get my head above the clouds, otherwise there was no future. I need to look into the distance. If you stare at your feet and worry about what happened to you, you're going nowhere. So yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel, which is largely what I wanted Julian, I asked Julian to portray, and what Susie and Julian put together. Um, but for many, that are, that this is the truth for many, they don't get to that point. They do find their own particular cliff, and that's why the NSPCC is so, frankly, important, and why I thought this story was so rounded beyond a certain point, that it did give a portrayal of a future that's there to so many people who don't realise it is. It's interesting, um, you're talking about um, this film tackling um, the issue and what Mark and, and Alistair as well have said about the timelessness of it. Um, Julian, I, I was thinking about the scenes that we see in South Africa um, and I know a lot of directors talk about a show don't tell. Um, what I find interesting about this film is that um, implying and not showing can sometimes be much more powerful. And, and it, it's something that's achieved so well in this film. Um, could you talk about the discussions that you and Susie had in advance of, of starting the shoot about how you thought everything should be filmed? Well, I think originally with discussions with David, actually, that there was, you know, I mean, David put the argument to us that is it more honest to show everything? Are, are you, by looking away at all, are you, are you being dishonest? But I think in the end, that's not necessarily true. I think, you know, a certain amount of suggestion is much more powerful. And obviously we're dealing with a 10 year old, 11 year old boy. Um, so I had to very much find a way to craft it that was suggestive. And the, the sort of image of the butterflies that um, Susie came up with seemed like a very good way to express this. And we found this, um, this room in South Africa with this sort of tunnel leading out to the light. And really all those things sort of began to fall into place. And I think even in the editing, we took little bits out so that it became more, more suggested. Um, because in a way it's, particularly that part of the film is very much from David's subjective point of view and what he's focusing on to try and blot it out. So that's really, um, you know, why we did what we did. Um, I'm curious, um, early in the, in the process of developing uh, the film, uh, Julian and, uh, and also Susie, um, there's so much in David's life. It's a, to to present, um, aside of the fact that you weren't going to go to the Himalayas and, and films climbing scenes there, um, did you find yourself with a lot of material that, that you, you had to sort of cut down in order to make such a cogent narrative? Um, yeah, so just when, when, when I suppose I had a quite a clear idea uh, from my conversations with David and I work with a great developer, Sarah Golding, who I was able to talk through roughly what I had in mind. She very much helped me in the initial draft um, to kind of build the story that I had uh, wanted to tell, which was um, initially very much a single protagonist story and about this sense of um, this man, a survivor story, if you like. And then what was wonderful was when Julian came in and read the early draft, uh, he saw something that perhaps was um, 
um, uh, I, I suppose the romance of the story as much as anything else. And so as we went through the process of the drafts, the script very much took shape as a result of those two different visions. Um, and Mark and Emily, um, I'm most curious when actors are playing real characters, the, the balance between the responsibility to the real person that play, they're playing, but also having to find a character arc that you know, this, this is a performance, this is a dramatic performance. It isn't real life. Um, how much of a challenge was it for both of you uh, with this film? Um, Emily, perhaps you first. Uh, well, we tried to be as true to what we thought their journey would be without asking them. <laughs> well, um, yeah, we just tried to be honest with it and uh, it, it, it was that really. I never thought about imitating or be, being Vanessa and uh, we just discussed their situation really. Um, um, yeah, well, what, what, what about you, Mark? I, I... Yeah, I think mine was maybe a bit easier than yours because running parallel with the shooting schedule was my subject who was there most days. So running parallel with getting behind the, in front of the camera, behind the camera, I had an education coinciding with what I was shooting. So uh, David and I would talk in depth about certain emotions that he'd go through, and that's what I was blessed with, really. I had his accessibility to rely on, uh, and he was extremely open about that. So I was able, at times, um, there'd be certain emotions which had been contorted by his experience, which I couldn't quite understand. Um, and so off camera, I'd have the opportunity to be able to get my teeth into that and understand it and try and gain some kind of empathy and, um, you know, understanding. So for me, I, I think mine was a little easier, uh, although <laughs> maybe harder, I don't know. Um, but either way, I had, I had David uh, there all the time and he was just my blueprint for... He was just the underground sewer blueprint for what you see on the surface in the film. Um, and without it, it would have been, it, I doubt it would have been probably a guessing game sometimes. I think some of the education that I was able to absorb from him about certain mindsets and the way that his psyche had been adjusted by his experience, uh, it changed what I did in the film. So for me, it was, it was really, it was crucial to have that there and for it to be a real person, um, I think it just sharpens your instincts a little more. And key for me watching this film, and I, I know I've, I've read David, you talking about this, is, is the lunch sequence where you met uh, with your father. Um, could you talk a little bit about that scene and, and also your conversations with Susie and Julian about the representation of your parents? Yeah. Um, firstly, the the lunch scene happened uh, in reality. It, it uh, actually was a dinner, but it was uh, long and short. Uh, on impulse, I picked up the phone to my father after a dozen years, and um, 
largely because, um, like I said, I, I really wanted to show off. And uh, so I sort of made something of myself and against all the odds, because all I had was really denigration to that point. Um, and uh, the, the second thing was that I, I, I really sort of deep down inside always really wanted a father. And to this day, I still sort of do. And uh, it's, a, you know, never had anybody to ask, ask advice of and, and uh, you know, bounce stuff off. But when it came to the, the shoot scene, Julian, as ever, you know, was literally on song. I mean, I've been granular with the, with the conversation with, with Susie. She represented it, uh, created the template, uh, the, the framework with which Julian got to work. And yet, increasingly throughout the whole movie, there were very few occasions where what was portrayed in front of me, much to my surprise, was any different than what was really inside my head. That's what really surprised me the most. I mean, to the extent sometimes that uh, Hugo came running out of the house wearing the same red and yellow cheesecloth shirt that I had as a child. No one had asked me. It was like, wow. And so for some reason, we seem to be on the, on the, on the, on the, on the same track. But uh, that scene, um, I personally think, is the, probably one of the most, if not the most powerful scene of the entire film, to be perfectly honest. Uh, perhaps that's, that's just me. Um, but the, the deft touch and the, the, the vision, and if you don't mind me saying, Julian, is uh, the fact that you could see through that and portray that such that it appeared in front of even my eyes almost exactly as it happened without me giving much input, input on, on that particular day and largely just being in the background, albeit a bit close, <laughs> um, is a testament to your, your skill. And I'm enormously grateful. And perhaps I can bring in Susie as well as this, uh, at this moment with you, David, uh, talking about your mother, because I guess there's a version of, of this story where one might feel that the mother, uh, your, your mother, um, Joanne, should be perhaps shown in a little more negative light that she left you with your father at one point in time. And, and, but what we have instead is a much more complex situation um, with a great deal of understanding um, both within the script, but I, I felt a view in your reconciliation with her. Hmm. There was a um, there was a lot of complexity in that also in the process because I know that from my conversations with David that it was one of the things that he found most traumatic about the um, early script was just that I was going into that relationship and I felt that. Uh, it was. It's very, very hard to um, portray that. That there had to. It had to be a more complex situation the, than that. David carried some kind of anger for his mother, and then had some kind of forgiveness for his mother. That just seemed to simplify things so much. And so we really did look for nuance within that. And I know it was um, really difficult for you, David, um, that that process. But he he was so generous to both Julian and I uh, for letting us continue on our track. And, and then of course, Anna, who's such a, a smart um, uh, performer and, and she was she had her own notes and she had a really brilliant vision with that character. And I think it, it really paid off. David. Yeah, um, probably the most difficult part of the whole story for me is, is, the, is my mother mother's element of it to be perfectly honest 
Um, yes, Anna wanted to play the part, broaden the part, and she thought there was a lot more, and her instincts were correct. Um, the way it was represented uh, was, I think, uh, beautifully done, let me say, but there's a, there's a part of it that I think is, should be more reflective of my part in her, her death. And there are certain elements uh, that I, I feel for the, for the, for in full disclosure should have been part of the story. Um, but that notwithstanding, she's, uh, the biggest regrets I have are the, are the way in which I acted and I treated that woman. Um, I hope largely because of the way I was treated as a child, but I still regret it. Um, you know, you reach a certain age where you are over a certain watershed, you're able to breathe out a bit, feel a little bit more, be more reflective and, and look back and think, wow, I really wish I hadn't done that. And, uh, you know, when I stood next to her in that, as I did in a bedroom, just like that, and uh, we, uh, she said sorry to me for everything, you know. I, I can't, the, those two scenes, the, the one where uh, Anna comes to the building, uh, sorry, my mother comes to the building and uh, my mother's in the bed, are the two uh, parts of the film that um, I, I struggle with it every single time. I, um, I want to move back to the beginning of the story now and, and Julian and Susie, um, you chose to shift the events which actually take place uh, in London um, to South Africa. Could you talk a little bit about the decision to do that, please? Um, so it was um, actually, it was, the decision was really based on the fact that there were in my conversations with David, uh, because there were some family members um, surrounding the, the abuse um, that took part in David's childhood. And that was set in a certain part of London. And we felt that it would be really difficult uh, to, to tell that part of the story in London. And it felt like by using South Africa, where, which where David had just returned from South Africa, so that it worked out time-wise. So actually it was really a, a pragmatic editorial decision as much as anything else. And Julian, um... Just, I guess, widening that out, uh, just looking at the contrast between um, South Africa and London and your work with Felix Widman, the, the cinematographer. Yeah, I mean, we, we very much wanted to show the contrast, obviously, the sort of pre-abuse, carefree childhood, which we shot in, you know, much wider lenses, there's sort of more saturated colours, there's a sort of sense of freedom. And then that gets closed down as um, obviously post abuse and becomes cooler and the sort of perspective becomes more fixed, especially in the city when we, we tried to show how much David was hemmed in um, by both by his environment and obviously by himself. So that was the sort of part of the sort of visual strategy of the, of the, of the piece. Um, because that idea, uh, one of the interesting things about about the script that, and the brave, brave things about what David has done is is being prepared to show the sort of really negative, awful behaviour, really, and with very little obvious uh, kind of. And Susie was very good at not at not trying to soften that about being very truthful, and so. The, the sort of key was to try and find those moments where you, you understood 
and you could see what was going on behind this this very harsh, uh, unfeeling mask, really. Um, and that was one of the things that really attracted to me to the project, that it was really tough, but totally unsentimental. Um, and I'd like to ask um, both David and uh, Alistair about this world that, that, David, you went into. Um, you know, the fact is, Jeff's a fascinating character because he is this rapscallion charmer. Um, he is someone yes. who... <laughs> that you can, you can be very seduced by. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering, because not everyone goes into this world um, with the experience you've had, obviously, um, but it does produce a certain kind of person. Um, and I, I'm just curious what it was like initially entering that world. And, and was it somewhere where you felt, actually, you know what, it's an easy place for me to hide everything, and that's why it's being good here? Or was there also that... that that kind of thrill, the visceral thrill of the experience? Well, the actual entry point into the job was, again, largely due to my father's experience. I knew markets existed. And so I rocked up eventually in, into a trading role. And by chance uh, at Goldman Sachs, I found myself in an environment which was thoroughly brutal, thoroughly fun, thoroughly uh, scallywag. You know, I was just born for it. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was the most amazing environment that, that suited um, aggression, it suited um, cavalier, it suited, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, lack of care for one's own future. You had to, in order to, success, you need, to get great, good success, you needed to throw yourself at it hook, line and sinker. And it's uh, largely through virtue of the state, my, my personal state of mind at that point, I was willing to do most things um, that had been portrayed and, and uh, not really care about whether I was going to survive them. So I was able to take greater risk, do crazy things, live the hedonistic lifestyle, all because really, I didn't really care whether I lived or died, for want of a better expression at that point. Um, Jeff, uh, Jeff Collins, the portrayal of, of the amalgam of my bosses um, is, is, is perfect, really, because he sees that and yet wants to exploit that so-called talent, like in inverted commas talent, to make tons of money for him. But as most bosses in that situation have, have found, it's a real balancing act. You want the guy, you see the person who's able to do that, you want to encourage it, but at the same time, it could be the means of an early death or an early downfall. And so you balance those two things. And I think it's portrayed great. I think it's brilliantly portrayed, actually. Especially it's, the um, thing. It's um it what what was we did a we did a, we we spent sort of half a day or a couple of hours observing a a, a trading floor, um, which I'd uh, I'd never been to on one that was actually working live, and then we got to shoot on the same trading floor subsequently. Um, and to sort of witness what was going on, it, it, I've never seen any sort of any working environment like it where there seems to be an enormous amount at stake, huge amounts of money that go somewhere. Um, but also how these people interact, it felt um, even now, actually, um, uh, uh, when, when we shot the film, it still felt very, uh, very masculine, a very kind of... Yeah, very masculine, really, sort of toxically so, I guess, in a way. Um, 
but sort of witnessing these sudden flurries of of people screaming at each other, and then immediately the, the the sort of the wave broke, and then they went back to sort of offering each other a coffee. It was extraordinary to see this this. And I, we were all standing observing this, thinking they do this day in and day out. Um, and there was a little pocket at the end of the trading floor who seemed to be almost using the sort of Charlie's Angels title sequence way of communicating by sort of plugging things in. And I asked David, I said, what are they doing? And he effectively was saying that they're sort of the old guard, that they're not now doing the sort of the modern way of trading. It's very much old school. And I said, how long will they last? And they were only in their sort of late 40s, I think early 50s, but very much in that 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 method of working and he said well as long as the systems is still required and i said well what happens when the system is no longer required by certain certain clients he said well that's it they're out they're done um so you know we talk about actors having pressure <laughs> we have none at all um but watching these people do what they did and it felt like an environment as david's just said it felt like an environment that is all encapsulating um your working day, there's it, it, there's going to be drama in there, which I guess you get you become immune to, uh, because that is your normal functioning life. And I guess that once you step out of that, you can look back at it and go, um, that's sort of insane, really. And in fact, there was just one more thing to say about it. There was um, a great pal of David's, she uh, who worked on the film with us. Um, she uh, had worked with David a lot and worked in that environment and had stepped out of it to do to do a very different job. Um, very different job, not connected to the city. And um, I remember talking to her about it and she was going back into the city because she missed it. So it's, it's it, it, you know, we talk about addiction um, across all sort of, I don't know, all sort of forms, but there's clearly something that brings a certain type of person into it. Um, it was fascinating to sort of see that that world. And that's obviously where my character was sort of principally based in the film. It was funny, that was my first sense of association in the film. When I first moved to London, I had a job which worked above um, oil traders. And they used to get charged, I think, something like 500 quid if they had a fight in the pit during the day. Um, Susie, I'm, I'm curious about your research. Did you, and Emily as well, actually, because you, you obviously filmed scenes in that world. Um, did you speak to uh, many traders for your research? I spoke to David a lot, <laughs> and uh, I, I think I think I have I've lived in London for quite a long time, and I think I had a, enough understanding roughly of what that world was. And I did some other research, uh, and so I, I, I was just interested in that sense of uh, well, the theatre of it, um, but also the kind of power play and the way that the world of that banking world really. Uh, represented quite an abusive environment and it was really a recreation of David's childhood in so many ways on a day-to-day -day basis in the workplace. And Emily, did you did you actually speak to uh, any female traders? Uh, no, I didn't. Well, we all visited the trading floor together and we watched it. It's very, so much adrenaline. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sugar and there's a lot of coffee and there's a lot of stress balls and there's a lot of uh, rocking up and rocking and twitching um so a lot of uh adrenaline a lot of people looked very tired as well but um but uh when i talked to vanessa about it she said what well, she'd start she'd started when they're really young so she said the environment to her at first was just really exciting and fast and fun and it was just quite a thrill for her so and i guess it's quite 
obviously, yeah, it's, it's quite aggressive and, but I think also, yeah, but, but that also is what interests her in David as well. He's this interesting anomaly who comes in and, and he's really talented and smart, but he's also, there's something else about him that it's a bit different to the rest of the vibe of, of, of the rest of the people there. Um, there's this kind of sensitivity or this, um, he's got, he's got quite a strong, um, uh, he can be quite confrontational and um, anyway, but um, I, th I think, yeah, yeah, a little bit. And, and David, um, has many of the people that you used to work with seen the film and has, has there been any kind of battle over any of them saying, no, that's me, I'm Jeff? <laughs> There's been a lot of focus on Jeff, I have to say, especially, yeah, uh, which I've had to deflect um, and made it clear to them that it's an, it, it, he is an amalgam, as are the circumstances surrounding it. Um, I've had an awful lot of comments on the authenticity of the trading scenes, and, but I knew that when I, when I saw them shot. They really are spectacular and never to be repeated. They really are, um, especially the second one where um, Mark, I think, just sort of free-flowed. Free it was an amazing moment. And I was standing there with a colleague of mine, Yasser Dalal, who a uh, great friend of mine. And when Mark did that off-the-cuff run, um, which it really was, there was no way he could have done that twice. And he'd done it absolutely perfectly the first time. Uh, there was a lot of work in, in scripting the previous scenes. It's a, it's a perfect representation of trading at a certain time in history when it was open outcry, lots of shouting, lots of screaming, lots of macho, lots of going down the pub afterwards, getting hammered, getting home at four o'clock in the morning, being back in the office by six. It was like that. And it was like that between 1983, four when I joined, to largely close to late late 90s, with, with its epicenter around about 1990, really, 88 to 92. Uh, and then it changed fundamentally. So what we've managed to, to capture is the, the, the essence of that, but we moved it to 2008, 2009 for contemporary reasons. Brilliant job. And, uh, you know, and they, interestingly enough, the reason we got the, the trading floors to use for the shoot for six straight days was because that company, ICAP, which is a broken firm, are enormously philanthropic and enormous supporters of the NSPCC as well. Um, we're going to have to finish in a moment, but I, I just want to come back to the NSPCC, um, your work with them, and, and the role that this film is going to play going forward. Obviously, this is now on release and general audiences can watch it. Can you, can you talk a, a little bit about your continued work with them? Yes, uh, you know, I used to be a trustee. I, I surrendered my trustee because I, I wasn't able to do it justice. I was too busy, literally. Uh, a better a job for people who have more time. The charity's uh, obviously got its back to the wall at the moment, but the charity's divided largely into two halves, the NSPCC and Childline. It's not quite halves, clearly, but it, it works that way. The Childline gives uh, an avenue for children to call into when they're, when they're paralyzed with fear, uh, when they can get out the house, whatever it is. And Vanessa is now a, um, a counsellor in that respect. The film is designed, from my perspective, anything I make from this film goes to that charity. A cut of this film, as, of, as an overall level, goes to this charity. Um, and that's the point of it. This story has, uh, historically, child abuse has been reflected as a physical infliction. 
physical. That's it. We've seen tons of films that do that. This film tells the whole story. It tells the mental element of it, which has not been told before. And crucially, the collateral damage that surrounds it. There's thousands of people have been influenced by this, at least around me. Can you imagine that? The multiplier effect when you look through society. And largely, and most importantly, that there is a redemption. There is a chance of redemption at the end of it, which I don't think many films, if any, have ever reflected. And so I'm hoping that this is a better reflection of the entirety of the child abuse issue and benefits the charity, this charity, and its, its equivalents throughout the globe. And I'm working every hour I possibly can to make sure that this movie is seen in every different country through any different means and uh, trying to make the bosses of these platforms, shall I say, very aware of that fact and that they will go to hell if they do not take it. Um, unfortunately, we are going to have to draw this discussion to a close. Um, for anyone who thinks that someone else might be interested in uh, listening to this, after watching the film, it will be available via um, SoundCloud. Future sessions uh, run by BAFTA will be available on uh, to find out. Uh, you can find out about them on upcoming events on the BAFTA website, and of course with the uh, regular newsletter. Thank you to Catherine who's been captioning this event. Uh, thank you also to BAFTA and to Modern Films for organising it. But most of all, um, thank you so much, David, Julian, Susie, Mark, Emily, and Alistair. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.